Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. His LinkedIn profile is not fully transparent. Did you know this? It's true. It goes all the way back, but I don't see his newspaper delivery job, which we know from his brother all those months ago he had. It was his first job. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, and that paper route taught me a lot about business as a 12-year-old. Oh, I bet it did. I bet it did. <laughs> he keeps asking callers to say they hate the show, but it might be a case of don't wish too hard, you'll get what you ask for. He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Yeah, pushing back from the gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we're going to talk about just how much access airlines have to inaccessible airports. Yeah, you've got an all-access pass to the information. Plus, turns out I was wrong about something. But that's not really news, is it? First, though, let's prepare for a takeoff with, wait, with a message from a listener? That's right, Ben. Once in a while, we get such an accumulation of great listener questions and comments that we like to catch up by filling a whole show with them. Okay, okay, really, once in a while, we just get lazy about coming up with our own material, so we outsource all the work to you, our listeners, or at least the truth is maybe somewhere in between. Anyway, this episode is entirely yours. Yeah, you didn't know it, but you, our dear listeners, are the producers and writers of this week's show, starting with John in Cincinnati, who writes, Hello, Seth and Ben. During a recent episode, you discussed how Southwest and others are now serving major airports, quote, they previously had no access to, unquote. Obviously, access is easier now with activity down, but uh, wasn't access by non-hubbing carriers always guaranteed or protected? Airports have competition plans for this purpose, don't they? Keep up the mediocre show. There you go, Ben. <laughs> there we go. It was, it was starting to get cliche saying the show is bad. Anyway, he up the ante. Uh, mediocre. We'll take that. Better than good if we're looking for miserable listeners. But what about that? And I think this comes down to maybe common use gates versus – I mean there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. But clearly it's true that some airports are really hard to get into. But 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 is there something more there that we haven't mentioned about guaranteed access? Well, there's not a law that says non-hubbing carriers are guaranteed space at any airport they want to go to. There's not a national law or a state law that says if you don't serve O'Hare and you want to serve it as a spoke and you're a new entrant, O'Hare must give you a gate. There's not a law. Now, many airports want competition, right? They want more airlines there. They want control of more of their real estate so they can make things like that happen and they can welcome new carriers into airports and they may have their own ideas of how to best do that to encourage new competitors to come to airports. But John sort of suggests that isn't there a guaranteed or protected spot? I don't think there is. 
even though certain airports may think of it that way and say, we're always going to try to control enough of our real estate so that we can make sure to have access for carriers when they do want to come in, because we know that competition is good for everyone. And in a de facto sense, it kind of, I guess, the arc of progress, as you often hear in other realms, right, kind of bends toward openness in the sense that, for example, so I mentioned common use gates, basically, you have three kinds of gates, common use in the US, but around the world, common use gates, preferential use gates, and exclusive use gates. I mean, around the world, you have a lot more common use gates outside the US. But so exclusive use gates are what they sound like the gate belongs to the airline, right? You go to Atlanta, and there are a bunch of gates that are deltas, and delta could do whatever they want with them fly as much or as little as they want from those gates. But you can't build new exclusive use gates, if I'm correct, Ben, right? And that is, I believe, a law, right? If you build new gates, the gates generally are going to be preferential at most, right? They're, yeah, I don't think like- I don't think a new exclusive gate has been granted in literally decades. Most of the exclusive gates that exist in the U.S. are grandfathered rights from a long time ago, what American and United have in Chicago, what Delta has in Atlanta, and so on. And so even there, when air, when even when those airports grow, at most the new gates are going to be preferential use gates. And sure, airlines fight over who's going to have preference, but they are different in the sense that you can't just squat on the real estate. Uh, you know, if you're going to have them, O'Hare being an example, right? We we saw that play out. The airport expanding. Who's going to have preference over gates? But American and United can't just say, okay, those are gates, but we're just going to not do anything with them. We're just keep, going to keep other airlines out. Whereas they kind of can do that with their original gates there. So in that sense, you know, that, that promotes competition. Other things, right? Slots, which a lot of the listeners know this, but slots are different from gates. A slot isn't a physical thing. A slot is permission to take off or land. So a lot of times when airlines want something that regulators might not just want to give them, there might be some deal that frees up access, right? If an airline wants to merge, for example, or it wants a new partnership or something that might seem uncompetitive, anti-competitive, a regulator might say, okay, fine, you could do that, but you have to give up something. It might be real estate or it might be slots, and that goes on all around the world. So in that sense, too, yeah, there's there's some of what John is, is talking about. Uh, I think you're saying specifically, though, what you said – uh, unless we're we're both wrong about this, it's true that there's not like, right, some federal law that says uh, that you just absolutely have to that that you know, Delta has to give up a gate in Atlanta or that American has to give up a a gate that's that belongs to it. Well, and, and to your and to your point, Seth, I read a story just today that uh, I guess maybe today or this week the um not a merger, but on a, a marketing agreement between Canada's WestJet Airlines and Delta has been approved. But right. as part of that approval for those two carriers to work together, maybe market each other's airline, work together to grow Canada, US traffic, whatever they're gonna do. As part of that, they have to give up a certain number of pairs of slots at LaGuardia Airport. And that's exactly like what you said. And is yeah. part of the approval for that deal, they're going to give up some slots at LaGuardia Airport. And presumably those slots won't just go 
you know, Delta is the largest holder of slots at LaGuardia. So almost by definition, they're going to be given to someone who's smaller than Delta or by definition. And the question is, how, how will those slots get allocated out and presumably through some process that the Department of Transportation runs to try to increase competition and give access to carriers who didn't have access before or who had, you know, less access? Similarly, Reagan National Airport in D.C., which is the other very tightly slot controlled airport in America. We've seen over the years access there has been liberalized, not because anybody ever came in and in a vacuum said, OK, uh, you know, U.S. Airways or later American or what have you, uh, you have to just give up gates or slots for no reason there or some other kind of real estate but because they wanted something, somebody wanted something, whether it was a merger of those two airlines I just mentioned, whether it was a slot swap with Delta, uh, Delta consolidating up at LaGuardia and I was going to say American, I guess US Airways actually at the time down at Reagan, which resulted in what we see today, which is uh, Southwest having a bunch of service there and JetBlue and others, for example. And so, again, in a de facto sense, just kind of the way, way the world goes for other reasons, these airports end up opening up, but it's not because they just sort of have to absent anything else. It's just that very often something else happens. And then as a result of that, you see that access. Uh, Nimai in Britain, he just writes Britain. Britain's a big place, but that's all he tells us about where he is. Writes, hey, guys, love the show. Sorry, Seth. I have a question for you. What policies do airlines have in the unlikely event of an accident? In your career, Ben, what were the different protocols at the airlines you worked for in the event of an accident? So I, I guess, I mean, look, obviously there are, you know, you could, you could fill a year talking about safety procedures. I guess let's, let's boil it down like this, Ben. Can you think of differences, right? I'm, I, I, I'm sure 95% of it is the same, right? I mean, I'm sure there's, I mean, because a lot of it is just driven by regulation, uh, you know, you got to be able to evacuate the plane in 90 seconds and so forth, right? So a lot of it is not up to the airline. But can you think of a difference? I want to say no for one reason, although I'm going to caveat that in a minute. This area of aviation, of commercial aviation, is one of the places where airlines work together rather than compete. And when an airplane crashes somewhere, whoever is closest you know, goes out of their way. I remember when there was a, a crash, I think it was a Korean airplane in Guam and it was continental Micronesia at the time sent all their people and they put in their whole plan to help those people because they were the people on the ground where it happened at that time. And each airline has sort of an emergency response plan. They do tabletop drills to prepare for events. They go through scenarios where they'll mock up an event has happened and they'll put the war room together in terms of getting everybody. They'll do everything short of sending people to a site, but they would know who the people are that would be going to the site if it were a real event. They uh, follow all the things and then they say, you know, who did we miss and who didn't get contacted and and who didn't know what to do and how will we do that better next time? And the learnings from each of those tabletops and airlines get shared with other airlines. They say, we had this event on this day and here are the things we learned. And here are the things we learned in COVID that maybe we couldn't get people as quickly as we did before because they weren't all working in our building and it took us longer to get everything together, right? And they'll 
try things and they share that information. And that sharing is good for all airlines. What I was going to say is if it's different, I worry about something that I don't know if it's different, but I worry about it, Seth. And that's if there are certain countries who might um, bury information or make it harder to get to the accident scene to help the victims or to understand what really happened for fear of maybe best case embarrassment to the country or maybe something else that they don't want people to see what's going on there. And whenever something like this happens, it's the way for the industry to share information, find ways so that it won't happen again, figure out what happened, take care of the people who who have been affected by it in the airplane, on the ground, and so on. And I worry that there are certain places in the world that things could happen that the world wouldn't, for lack of a better term, benefit from the learnings that could happen from something like that. Yeah, we've seen accident investigations in in a few cases get seemingly politicized. And I agree, it's the last thing you want. Sometimes they get wrapped up in geopolitical issues, but anybody who knows anything about the good safety investigation boards, like the uh, DSP in America, for example, and and others around the world knows that the, those people are just, I mean, they are technocrats. They're not trying to make one country look good and another country look bad. But sometimes, again, it gets wrapped up in other stuff. Nimai finishes that message with keep up the great work. Well, th- uh, you thank to, you. You had, to, you, had to, you had to ruin it, Nehemiah. <laughs> you know what? I, I will also say when I was CEO at Spirit, part of our emergency response preparedness, which was a lot of things, including, you know, lots of procedures and uh, practice events and things like that, but it also included emergency response training of people who might have to step up in front of a microphone, including me as the CEO, our station managers. You know, if a crash happened in a station, maybe even an international station, the local on-site manager might have to speak to local media. So training on how to respond in those situations, legally what you can and can't say, how to be empathetic, how to not be ambivalent, right? The, the whole idea. So a lot goes into this emergency response training so that an airline, once a situation happens, can respond quickly, understand what they have to do, make it all about the people and the effect on the people and how to save as many as possible and how to deal with the families affected from the event. We want to pause for a moment to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. That's www.clearme.com airlines. Arun in Dallas writes, hi guys, just wanted to clarify a comment from the last podcast. Mike Boyd said Southwest is not allowed at DFW. This was actually two, two shows ago at this point. Uh, it's against the law. That is incorrect. They are allowed there. They would have to give up one gate at Love Field for every gate they take at Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm sure Mike Boyd knows that. I think he was just sort of saying – I'm going to use that word again, de facto. That is true. Uh, one for one, and Arun actually sent the uh, – which I actually never read the language before. Thank you, Arun, the the, uh, the language in the agreement. Uh, the, 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 it, actually, if you would have gave him more into the weeds <laughs> – Southwest would have to give up one gate up to a total of eight. My read of it is that like if they 
the the incentive would switch if they started like building up this huge huge presence at DFW. They would have to give up the first eight gates at Love Field, but not go beyond that. Anyway, they only have twenty gates at Love Field, which is by all appearances a, a very successful. Well, and they all have only eighteen them. of them, right? Uh, yeah, I th- yeah, you're right. That's right. There are, <laughs> I should say, there are only twenty gates at Love Field, only eighteen of which are Southwest. That's right. They scratched and clawed for what they have at love field and in fact the airport had to as part of the agreement uh, when the right men went went away and southwest was able to begin flying nonstop from love field to anywhere it wanted in america uh, they actually had to shrink the airport down from if i recall correctly 30 something gates to the 20 gates of which i think you're right uh 18 belongs to southwest right now so hard to imagine that they would ever do that that's true technically uh they could you know start flights at four gates over at DFW in exchange for giving up four at Love Field. We talked last week, I think it was, about another reason why that would be even harder to imagine. I mean, this wasn't the context, but their distribution issues. I mean, for Southwest to start a very small presence at an airport that's dominated by somebody else, it's just hard to market themselves because they don't distribute widely, right? They're not in the online travel agencies. You would have to know look their their site you can't even search multiple airports so so you'd have you'd really have to know that they're there and to go to you know southwest.com just to search flights for a few gates from dfw i i i think would be an uphill battle for them to begin with and then if you're giving up gates over at dallas fort worth even or at, at dallas Love field rather even harder to imagine but fair enough arun for the record that is true they're not prohibited from starting services at dfw at uh until 25 what is it 2025 they simply are strongly discouraged that's right economically you know from doing that and seth in my class i i talk to my students about physical versus regulatory restrictions at airports you know physical restriction like not having enough gates for example right um versus a regulatory restriction like a slot or a perimeter rule and i talk about the right amendment as being one of if not the most egregious sort of regulatory restriction on an airport ever in u.s history for commercial purposes i mean that the fact that southwest was only allowed to fly initially in the state of texas and then it got expanded to states adjacent to texas um and they could not only not fly but they couldn't even sell i mean even if southwest flew a plane from love field to oklahoma city and then that plane went on to chicago they couldn't sell a ticket from dallas to chicago you had to buy a ticket from Dallas to Oklahoma City and a separate ticket from Oklahoma City to Chicago because they weren't allowed to. The right amendment was that restrictive. And the carrier, while it was stomping on Southwest, the carrier was really helping was American Airlines at DFW. Because while American had to compete with Southwest fares to Oklahoma and New Mexico and you know, New Orleans and other cities in Texas, it didn't have to compete with Southwest fares to Chicago, to the West Coast, to Washington, to Florida, to New York, right? And so its fares were a lot higher there on a per mile basis. And it got away with that for years and years and years and years. So as you can guess, American Airlines was one of the airlines pushing long and hard for many, many years to keep the right amendment in place because it really helped them in DFW while it was hurting Southwest. Zach in Philly sends what I 
think has to be the best email of the day. Subject line is happy anniversary. Zach continues episode one, October 21st, 2019. It's been how embarrassing we missed this. We should have like a wild, you know, COVID safe celebration this week, right? <laughs> with all kinds of champagne drunk from you know, six feet apart with people just kind of pulling down their masks a little bit or anything completely overlooked that. So there you go. They said it wouldn't last what 51 weeks, but here we are. Uh, and then Zach continues. Now this is the summary that was posted online. The little tease uh, from that first episode. It says bumping passengers, annoying fees and planes without pilots. Zach then continues. Now we have no passengers, no fees and Pilots without planes. What a time to be alive, he writes. What Thank a fantastic, you, what a fantastic uh, note, Zach. <laughs> perfect. Up next, we're good. Back then, we thought the Max was the mo- it was the biggest crisis we could imagine. Right? To take nothing away from, I mean, obviously, 30, 346 people died, uh, you know, the, for, for, in terms of an aviation tragedy. COVID is just a, a much bigger global tragedy, but that was a, an, an aviation industry tragedy that continues to matter right now. But, uh, but obviously in terms of impact on the industry, economic impact of the industry, we had no idea back then. And we still had no idea as this year started, what was about to come. Well, up next, we're going to talk about something Ben was wrong about. Then we're going to ask him a few new questions to give him something new to be wrong about. So we can get our first (laughs) messages for next week. Quickly more airlines confidential is next. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Back to the mailbag now actually to my phone here's a text from cousin ross who i've mentioned before is an airline pilot ben ross writes this is a quote i'm sure one of our listeners is going to correct me on something i said unquote ross writes i'm gonna be that guy ha 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 <laughs> he's right that turbulence this was the question last week about what it was a finer wine a passenger complained about turbulence. Yeah, about turbulence on a sunny right, day. On Legion, right, and blamed it on the pilot. Ross writes, uh, Ben's right that turbulence is usually, all caps, usually the result of uneven heating of the Earth's surface, which is what causes nearly all weather on the planet. However, what he's describing is really convective activity or thermals, and you'll experience that type of turbulence at lower altitudes and usually in the summer. However, your whining passenger is describing what we call clear air turbulence. This is what you'll typically find at higher altitudes in clear VFR conditions, visual flight uh, conditions. It's typically associated with the jet stream 
and it can be quite violent the closer you are to the core of the jet stream. It also usually comes totally unexpected and without warning unless someone in front of us along our route of flight reports it to air traffic control and air traffic control warns us when we check in on our sector. Great text, Cousin Ross. Love you. And interestingly about the last point, by the way, Ben, this is me talking again now. I've heard that the whole system of of just people finding out what's going on from planes in front of them has gotten tougher now. I mean, not in any kind of dangerous way, but just in terms of sort of routine turbulence – because there are just fewer planes yeah, in the sky. fewer people to report about what's fewer going on. people, right? yeah. So, so all things being equal, there's just less likely to be a plane right in front of you, you the captain and first officer, uh, to tell you what's coming. Because it's just because they're just far fewer flights. So it's kind of a uh, a little consequence, and 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 for that matter, the finer wine. Uh, I mean, again, that was you know. You can form your own opinion. Well, I hope Cousin Ross would agree, though, with my assessment that it was a wine and not just a bad pilot oh. at Legion, right? Oh, I, I have no I, – I didn't specifically clarify that, but I, I think you can take that to the bank. That, yes, Ross was not uh, disputing the, the larger point there. Simon from West uh, Sussex, England, right? And I should say we're continuing here with the, the, the pilot portion of this show. Hi, Ben and Seth. I was sitting at our gate at London Heathrow today waiting for our – COVID secure boarding process to process to complete when I heard on the radio a Delta pilot call up for his air traffic control clearance to Boston. I was surprised to hear his aircraft type was a Boeing 767-400. Given the fact schedules are thin at the moment and aircraft utilization isn't overly stretched, I'm surprised Delta uh, doesn't have a more efficient aircraft to fly that route with, with many airlines grounding and retiring older aircraft in their fleet. Why would Delta still be utilizing this aircraft on this route? Uh, I can't think of many other passenger operators using such type into Heathrow, which is what made it stand out to me. Uh, Simon writes, I did look into Delta's fleet. was surprised to see how old it appears to be compared to many other legacy carriers. Perhaps they have no choice. Love the podcast. Keep, keep up the good work. Simon, and he writes, pilot for a well-known large Heathrow-based airline. Well, what could that be from West Sussex? Must be Whiz Air, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's another great message. Hey, um, look, you're – well, first of all, Simon, not only are there – not a lot of 767-400s flying into Heathrow from not a lot of airlines around the world. There, I looked this up on CH Aviation. There is exactly one airline anywhere in the world flying the 767-400 right now, and that is Delta. That's it. United technically has them in the fleet still, but they're all parked. And I, I can't recall offhand if they've announced that that, that they're going to be retired. They've announced all kinds of retirements. Just don't recall specifically, although I wouldn't be surprised if those, if those never fly again for United. Anyway, technically, they're still in the fleet right now. 16 of them at, at United, all in storage. Delta has 21 of them, of which 14 are active if you include three that are maintenance right now, but 11 flying like today, according to CH Aviation. And Ben... Delta, of course, has retired a lot of aircraft. Simon correctly notes that Delta has, on average, a very old fleet, a very well-maintained fleet. We've talked about it in the past, why it kind of works for them. They have this huge tech ops operation, very efficient operation in Atlanta. So for them, old planes are more efficient than they would be for other airlines because they just have the scale to maintain them well. They do maintain them well. Uh, I don't think most passengers realize how old the planes are when they're on board. Uh, But I I think part of it is – 
precisely, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I think part of the answer here is precisely how many they have, right? When Simon says, I can't believe how many they have, I think that's part of the answer. They just have so much scale, surprisingly, and I agree. I, I had to look it up myself, and I was surprised to see that. But you know, when you have that many of them, uh, yeah, they're gas guzzlers, but it's not so inefficient because you have so many. And, and, and uh, Delta has obviously retired so much else that I guess these are aircraft that, look, they own outright. Uh, ownership costs are like nothing, or I think in most cases, at least they own outright, if not all cases. Uh, so it's a variable cost fleet. You know, you, you can park it when demand is low and you don't take any ownership car cost penalty. And among the 767s, at least the 400s were the most efficient. Uh, they, they don't have the greatest range, right? You can only fly them across the Atlantic. Not really, uh, they're not really trans-Pacific aircraft. There's a lot of missions they can't fly, but when you're not filling that many seats, right, because they're not that big compared to other wide body aircraft, uh, and you need something that doesn't cost a lot to own, I, I think that's probably, and you have the scale because you're flying 14 of them still. I guess maybe that's what the answer is. Anything else you could think of, Ben, or am I on the right track there? I, no, I think you're on the right track. I would be willing to bet. I I don't remember having, I certainly haven't blown recently on the Delta 767 400, but I'd be willing to bet that if you walked onto that plane as a customer from the jet bridge, it would look really nice inside. Because Delta has spent a lot of money on their older fleet, making the interiors really nice and comfy. And I bet they've got a really nice business class in that airplane with lie flat seats. And I bet customers on that plane don't realize unless they're people like Simon, right? They don't realize that they're on a plane that's as old as that plane because I bet it looks great inside. Also, like you said, Delta is just good at this. And at least pre-COVID, Delta was outperforming most of the industry, certainly most of the long-haul legacy industry in terms of margin, operating margin, revenue performance, operational performance. They've just been the class act of the industry for the business carrier kinds of airlines for the last number of years. And one of their strengths is the fact that they've learned how to really efficiently fly an older fleet of airplanes and keep themselves very reliable and have customers still like it because they spend all the money to make the interiors nice, but they end up having a lower cost of capital than their competitors. So if you look at what every airline has to pay for, people and fuel and airplanes and things like that, on that airplane line, Delta pays less than United and American do because they have that older fleet but they invest in it to keep it reliable and keep it customer friendly. The last time I remember flying for sure on a Delta 767-400, and I'm, I might have done it more recently, but the last one I recall was this goes back to an earlier topic in this show, the whole, you know, getting access to airports because somebody wants something and they have to divest something. So Delta began flying Miami to London Heathrow at one point. I believe that was part of when American was getting together with British Airways, forming the joint venture. If I recall correctly, one of the carve outs, one of the conditions was that they had to give Delta access at Heathrow to start flying to Miami and to Boston, which were two markets that regulators had identified as ones that BA like really dominated. Now, Virgin was in the market too, Virgin Atlantic, uh, but but markets were BA had a lot of pricing power. So Delta started flying. This is before Delta 
was in a joint venture with Virgin. So you're flying uh, Miami to London Heathrow. And I remember I flew them on that once round trip and it was on a, a 767-400, which is probably the perfect plane because you know, not again, not that big, right? They were just, they, they wanted to be in the market, but not have to fill, you know, the, the, the closer to 300 seats that, you, that you'd have to fly on a, uh, that you'd have to fill on a, a, you know, a 777 or something else that they might've been flying on that route. Uh, so that, and, and the plane at the time was, was immaculate at the time. It, I mean, this is what over a decade ago, it just probably wasn't that old. The, you know, that's the other thing to remember. So it was 400s. Uh, I mean, they were in production until re- relatively recently. They're also just not that old uh, when it when it comes to aircraft. Well, do you have a question for us? You could call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. I can't promise we're always going to get to as many questions as we did this week, but I'm glad that we got to get through the backlog a lot of great questions thank you so much for making this show uh what it what it is absolutely clear out the queue as they say right (laughs) (laughs) well finer wine is next but first we want to thank hotel connections the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations hotel connections is a fortune 1000 company and procures more than 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients hotel connections monitors and tracks room utilization to ensure you get the most out of the rooms you buy and that you only pay for what was consumed. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. I'll be getting our initial descent on today's show. It's time for Fine or Whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. Beatrice of Miami Beach is complaining about COPA. That's Panama's airline, by the way. Beatrice writes, this is definitely the worst of the worst airline ever. I came to check in at Fortaleza Airport in Brazil like three hours earlier. The manager wouldn't let me check in because apparently there was a problem with my ESTA, E-S-T-A, to enter America. Then he took four hours to check everything was okay, then said everything is fine. By that time, my flight had already left and he wouldn't give me a new flight or give me a refund, although it was all his fault for taking so long to check on something. I ended up losing $1,400. How horrible. I would never, definitely never, ever book a flight with this airline again, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to fly with them. They have the worst policies and they don't even care about their customers. Okay, interesting. Copa... For perspective, for, for those who don't know a lot about it, it's one of those airlines where it's a little surprising when you read a complaint about them. They're actually a rather well-regarded airline. So it's like when you hear, you know, when we read a complaint about you know, Delta or Southwest, one of those airlines that's rather well-regarded in general. Copa is one of those airlines. They've also generally been among the most successful airlines in the world. One of those airlines that generally has happy customers, but also happy investors. Obviously, right now, everything's a mess for, uh, for, for just about every airline but all that said setting that aside hey good airline bad airline they they all make mistakes uh, and they all also have customers at times complain about things that uh that perhaps aren't legitimate complaints like the allegiant passenger last week who blamed the uh the pilot for (laughs) turbulence uh so so what do you think ben fine or whine and why i think this is a wine that has a piece of fine in it and let me tell you what i mean 
If her ESTA, which stands for the Electronic System for Travel Authorization, it's required for people coming into the United States, if I think it's a wine because if it was good, there wouldn't have been a problem. There's very likely that maybe she had a different name for travel or had a different middle initial or maybe something was expired or there was something about her ESTA that they had to confirm that she was legal to fly to the U.S. Because if it's all correct, people don't even realize they have ESTAs most of the time, right? Because it just goes through. On the other hand, if COPA really took that long, they should have found a way for her to get home maybe on the flight the next day and helped her with her hotel that night or something like that. So I feel bad for her and it's a bit of a fine complaint that something was wrong with my ESTA and COPA didn't help me at all. But blaming COPA for her ESTA problem, I think is a whine. Think I got yeah. that right, Seth? Or am I yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, if it's true, that, and I'm surprised, you know, most airlines, when something like that happens, they'll kind of split the difference with you and say, hey, we can't hold the flight but we'll roll you on to the next flight that has a seat. So if they really didn't do that, then then that part I, I think is is a legitimate gripe. But you're right. Generally, there's something else going on. I mean, if you're in Fortaleza, Brazil, too, it's not like there are hourly flights to the U.S., right? Right. No, exactly. And so I'm, I'm sure there's multiple ways out of town there. Copa is probably a, a quite convenient one with a connection through Panama, I would imagine. But um, I be, I'd be surprised if Copa, at least when she did this, wasn't flying this daily and would have an option the next day, maybe. So yeah. it's unfortunate that she was just out the $1,400 and she yeah. never really says how she got back to Miami. Yeah, no, that part of it, I mean, you got a undoubtedly an awful situation, if nothing else. I mean, you feel bad for her, which is separate from the question of exactly what part of it is is her fault and, and the airline's fault. And, and again, we're always just relying on the information that we're given here is for discussion purposes. We don't go verify everything in these messages. It's just, okay, if this is what happened, whose fault <laughs> was it? Uh, and final approach, now that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and trade tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.